We're going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can. Uh, the words will be on the screen of the text in, uh, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but I have a, a, a complaint this morning, and it's because of my name. You know, we got a, we got a bum rap. We got a bad name. Anytime you, you use the word Tom and you put some kind of adjective next to it, it's never in a positive way, you know, like, like Hank, that's a great name, you know, Hammer and Hank Aaron, I mean, what a, what a great name, but Tom, it's only negative when somebody uses your name, you're like Peeping Tom, for example, you know, that's not something that you want associated with your name, you know, if somebody's uh, making a racial slur against somebody, they might call him an Uncle Tom, you know, and that has all kinds of negative connotations, but, but probably our most famous namesake uh, over generation after generation is probably uh, our buddy we find in the New Testament who uh, got the name Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas said, unless I, I put my finger in his hands, unless I can actually touch his side where the spear pierced him, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, from the very earliest of, of history, uh, from the resurrection forward, people have doubted the resurrection of Christ, whether it really took place and, and how they should react to that event, probably more so than any other event in the history of the world. Uh, this last week, MSNBC on their website, not on TV, but on their website, uh, showed a conversation between Pastor Rick Warren, who's the guy that, that wrote the bestseller Purpose Driven Life, uh, and the acclaimed atheist Sam Harris. Sam, Sam Harris has written numerous books on atheism, and they were sitting there having a, a very frank and, and honest back-and-forth dialogue and discussion about the existence of God uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I was watching the Discovery Channel earlier this week, and they had a, a little uh, lead-in to a show that's going to be on sometime today. I don't know what time, uh, but the lead-in was uh, you saw a room, and it was kind of a fuzzy picture. It, it, it wasn't very clear, but it was obviously some kind of what we would call worship service. And people were, were waving their hands and they were praising God. And, and yet the way they filmed it made it, you know, quite honestly, it made it just look a little bit goofy. And the tagline that, that the guy gave, the voice comes over and it says this, uh, there are those who choose to believe. So that's the, that's the first picture you get. Then it goes away from that scene, and then it's got a, a group of, of archaeologists who obviously are very wise, very intelligent people. They're, you know, they're dressed to the T's, and they're having this very intellectual conversation about, uh, about the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. And so you have this, this kind of goofy picture. There are those who choose to believe, and then the second half of the line is, and there are those who want to know. Obviously making the insinuation that a knowledgeable person can't possibly be a person of faith. Because anybody who studies enough and knows enough would never buy into the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to suggest to you that that's not new information. I want to suggest to you that those questions that are being raised in our generation are questions that literally trace their lineage all the way back to the resurrection of Jesus itself. The passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, takes the, uh, the doubting Thomases of us, so to speak, and addresses that issue uh, immediately and uh, with grace and with compassion. So maybe this week, you know, uh, Whit, you and me and the other Doubting Thomases, maybe, maybe, we're, uh, maybe we're the ones that, are, that need to be uh, uh, listening to this text and hearing this message, um, maybe changing our name after, after this morning's over. Wouldn't that be fun? Not from Tom, but take the Doubting part off. With that in mind, Matthew chapter 28, uh, beginning verse 16, just reading verses 16 through 20, hear the word of God. Uh, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we, uh, as we jump into this text this morning, as we spend time now uh, seeking to worship you with our minds, we pray for your Holy Spirit. Father, my word is, is not going to help anyone. It's not going to carry any weight. It's of no eternal substance. It is only your word that stands forever. So, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. There are those of us this morning who, who long to believe and want to believe, but we just can't quite convince ourselves that we ought to. There are others of us this morning, Father, that are just skeptical. We, just, we find it hard to fathom, and so we choose uh, not to believe. And there are those of us, Father, who, who have given our lives uh, to the authenticity of, of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But Lord, wherever we are this morning, where, wherever we find our, our spiritual and our emotional condition, Lord... I pray that you would touch each of our lives. It's by no mistake that we're here this morning. It is of your sovereign will. And so, Lord, I pray that that I would get out of the way and that you would do your work, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would be our teacher. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, when we we meet up with Jesus on this mountain, he's down to 11 disciples. Uh, He started out with 12, uh, and he lost one, Judas. And we're not sure how many days this is after the resurrection, but it's at some point because it takes a couple days to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee. So we know that at least some time has transpired, and we know that Jesus has already appeared to the disciples once. If we've read in the, in the Gospel of Luke, we understand that. Uh, and so this is, this is another or a next encounter with the risen Christ. And there are two reactions that I want to start out by looking at this morning that the disciples have to Jesus. It says in verse um, 17 that some, uh, when they came, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I want you to see both of those reactions. The first is that some of the disciples, or the disciples, it says they worshiped him. The word worship there literally means to to prostrate yourself. When we think of worship, uh, we talk about coming to church, so to speak. We talk about coming to a service. But technically speaking, the word worship means to bow oneself down. So traditionally, when we pray, we say, bow your heads and pray with me. And we physically bow our heads to show kind of a, a posture of submission. That's the technical word for worship. So the disciples, when they approach Jesus, they approach in an attitude of worship. It's an inward submission uh, that is exhibited by an outward behavior. But in the same breath, in an instant, Matthew says, but some doubted. Now, there are theologians that have tried to say in this text that there are other people around besides the 11 disciples, that as they were traveling, uh, a little bit of a crowd gathered, and there may be some other folks there, and that it might not be just 11, but maybe it's a, a bigger group of you know, 50 or 100, but the text simply doesn't say that, and I don't believe Scripture allows for that. I believe this was a meeting with Jesus and his 11 closest friends, and some of them were doubting what was right before their very eyes. Now, before we're too tough on these guys, I think we ought to acknowledge the fact that their reaction to Jesus oftentimes is not a whole lot different to our reaction of the risen Christ. The word doubted there has uh, the nuance or the understanding of of a hesitation. Uh, It's almost like you get a a check in your spirit, so to speak. Maybe you're in a conversation with somebody and, and you're talking back and forth and you're about to say something and you go, oh wait, 
I ought to think a little bit before I say that. You know, there, there's just that moment of, well, I better back up just a step. That's the idea of the word here that's in that text where it says, some of them doubted. And there's an interesting that, that worship and doubt uh, are here side by side. And the question that's coming up in the disciples' minds in some manner or fashion is, should we worship? Is that the appropriate response to the resurrected, risen Jesus? Is it appropriate for us to worship? Now, again, not being too hard on these guys, because if you go back and you read the Gospels carefully, and you look for places throughout the Gospels before the crucifixion and before the resurrection of Jesus, you won't find one single place where it says the disciples of Jesus bowed down and worshipped him. They're in a boat rowing him across the lake sometimes. Uh, They're following along behind him. Uh, They're actually rebuking little children who are coming trying to worship him. And I'm sure that the disciples held Jesus in awe, but there isn't any place recorded in Scripture that prior to his death and resurrection that they had worshipped him. So this was a new posture for them. And you can almost imagine them saying, is this, is this the right thing to do? Now, there could be a lot of reasons why they think that it might be that they go, man, this is just good, too good to be true. Am I seeing things? Is this really happening? Probably everybody in this room who is, who is at least a little bit older has been to a funeral at one time or another in their lives. We've had a loved one pass away, maybe a spouse or a mom or a dad or, or uh, a, a child or a friend. And we've gone to the funeral and then maybe we've gone to the graveside and we've seen the casket lowered into the earth. We don't expect to see that person at the grocery store in three or four days. We don't expect to have any more interaction with them this side of the life to come. And you have to put yourself in the disciples' shoes and understand the astonishing thing that is happening right before their eyes. It's no surprise that they go, is this, is this really going on? Even though Jesus taught them this, they were actually, I believe, just dumbfounded with shock, maybe with with an anticipation, maybe with an excitement. But in some way, they were wondering, how should we react to Jesus? Maybe confused, maybe not exactly sure how to engage with him. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the disciples move from unbelief and fear to faith and joy was for them a hesitant one. I think that's a great way to put it. Their move from unbelief and fear to faith and joy was a hesitant one. They just weren't quite sure what to do. Should we worship the risen Christ? I think that's a reasonable question. Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to follow him, and you're going to commit your life to him, that's a pretty serious step. That's the most important decision you will ever make in your whole entire life. Because becoming a disciple means that you submit your will to his that you give up your rights, that you no longer embrace uh, the world's philosophy of, of getting ahead and doing the things only for yourself and your own pleasure, and you become a servant of all, is what Jesus says. If you want to follow me, then take up your cross and come along. This is a serious commitment, and it ought not be entered into lightly. And it could be that potential disciples of Jesus are somewhat fearful. They're somewhat hesitant. Do I really want to sign off on this? Because if I do, I'm kind of letting go of all my rights. And I'm putting Jesus in control, and I'm going to submit my will to his. That's a scary place to be. Now, I've been trying to think all week how I can describe this emotion to you. But instead of trying to describe it for you, I want to show it to you. This is what I get as a picture of someone who is um, fearful because of the circumstances in which they find themselves, and maybe for good reason.
I have had that in my possession for six months, and I've just been waiting for the sermon to where it would, where it would fit. I, I uh, put that on my computer, and I put on my headset and listened to the, to the actual conversation that was going on. And what you can't hear is the guy on the back is, is telling her face this way. He's kind of giving her different instructions on what to do. And the guy in the ball cap who kind of moves out of the, the screen pretty quickly is saying to her, are you ready? Are you ready? And she keeps saying, just barely able to breathe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So finally the guy says, okay, one, two, three, let's go. And just, you know, doesn't wait and takes off. Sometimes I think when you think seriously about following Jesus, it's almost like wondering whether or not you want to be in a human slingshot. You know, it looks like it might be the greatest thing in the world, but it's kind of scary all at the same time. And so I think it's a fair response that the disciples had. I think it's a fair question to ask. Should we worship the risen Christ? I think the answer to that question lies in Jesus' words to his disciples in this text this morning. I don't think I have the answer for you. I think the answer is found in Scripture, and it's found in what Jesus himself says. Interestingly enough, when it says some doubted, the next verse doesn't say, you know, and Jesus said, I can't believe you guys. You know, I've been with you for three years. I told you I was going to be, you know, crucified, and I was going to rise from the dead, and you still don't get it. I just, you know, and an impatient and an angry response. I think that's where my response would have been. But Jesus doesn't respond that way at all. Jesus gives an answer, but he gives it with grace. He gives it with compassion. He's gentle. He doesn't criticize their doubts, but rather he addresses their fear. And I want to look at how he addresses the question of should we worship the risen Christ. The first part of the answer I think is found in verse 18, and it's the motivation for our worship. In verse 18, Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, your worship of me is, is, the, is the right thing to do. Those who are worshiping, you guys are getting it right because I am the risen, resurrected Savior and all of the authority and all of the universe has been given to me. So the reaction of worship is a right one and a good one. If you worship me in a sense, Jesus is saying, I'll care for you. I'm the only one who can care for you. I'm the only one that can offer you ultimately the covering and the protection of all eternity that God's love has to offer. Now, some people have said, well, this is, this is kind of the moment where in his resurrection where Jesus becomes God because now he has the authority that he didn't have before and he admits it right here at the end of Matthew, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that I have a new authority, but he's saying that I am no longer voluntarily restricting my authority. I've had authority from the beginning of the world and when I came and was born and took on human flesh, I restricted that authority. Look at how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's another way of saying, think like Jesus, who though he was in very form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, voluntarily restricted his authority. So he says in John's gospel, I've come only to do the will of my Father. I don't do anything outside of that. 
So he was operating under the authority of God the Father while he was on earth. But now that he is the resurrected Christ, Daniel tells us in his prophetic word that he has now appeared before God and that all of creation is now to know that Jesus is ruling and reigning. In Daniel chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Remember, a son of man is the title that Jesus took for himself during his earthly ministry. And he, the son of man, came to the ancient of days, that being God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that being the Son, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The authority of Jesus gives me a motivation to worship him because my worship acknowledges that he is in the rightful place, seated at the right hand of God the Father, that he is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if I put my trust in him, he will care for me. But Jesus doesn't just stop with our motivation, but he also talks about our attitude of worship. In verse 19, the very first word Jesus says now is go. In other words, Jesus is saying be, be purposeful. Don't be reactive, but be proactive in your relationship with me. Our worship of God is not based on waiting for the right set of circumstances. If we're saying to God, Lord, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to praise you as soon as uh, my health returns, or I'm going to praise you and I'm going to worship you as soon as you work out this crisis in my business. God, I'm going to worship you as soon as you fix all the problems and the issues in my marriage. If we have kind of a laundry list, a shopping list, so to speak, of all the things that we expect of God before we will in turn worship him, then we miss the calling that Christ has placed on our lives that regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, not to wait to when the moment is right, the moment is right now, Jesus says. So be purposeful. And worship is not to be based on our situation, but our worship is to be based on our Savior. Uh, We have a a dear friend on our staff who has been going through some physical problems, and the doctor said she may have cancer. Uh, And for the last month or so, she has been Uh, going in and and being diagnosed and the biopsy and kind of the whole nine yards. And this last week was the week that that she was going to find out uh, whether or not uh, this this problem that that she had was cancerous. Before she found out the answer to that question, uh, she wrote me a note earlier in this week, and she said basically, and uh, just I'm I'm paring it down quite a bit, she said, I'm going to be in church on Easter Sunday morning regardless of, of the outcome of my health. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. When Jesus says go, (laughs) that's what he's talking about. Put your trust in me. Your circumstances are going to ebb and flow. There are going to be good moments. There are going to be bad moments from a human perspective. That doesn't dictate our relationship. What dictates our relationship is that I have all authority in heaven and earth, so you be proactive following me and worshiping me. But he also gives us some action items of worship as well. Look at verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gives us uh, some marching orders, so to speak, or some guidelines or some direction for lives of worship, not just coming together on Sunday morning and singing some songs, but rather as we're going As we're living our lives, how do we worship this risen Lord? Well, the first thing he says is you do that by making disciples of all nations. 
I want to emphasize for this part of the sermon the all nations aspect, the, the, the every person without distinction. Up to this point, the, the redemptive history of Scripture has been flowing through the people of Israel. It started with God's promise to Abraham, one of your descendants will bless the entire world. Came through David. You'll always have a son, an heir, sitting on the throne forever and ever. I will establish your kingdom. And now it's come down to the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that my gift, my sacrifice, my cross is for the entire world, every generation, every people group, every tribe, every language, every tongue. And if you're going to worship me, you need to make sure that you're all-inclusive. No one is excluded from hearing the message of the gospel, whether rich or poor, slave or free, young or old. Everyone has the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to worship me, make sure you're sharing that with everyone. Then he goes on to say baptizing them. And I'm not going to stop here too long except to say that baptism is an outward sign of worship that we do together that says we belong to Jesus. When we baptize our little children, what are we saying? We're saying we're promising that God is going to one day save them, save him. That's what we're trusting in, that he's going to bring them to himself. He's going to, he's going to when they get old enough, reveal himself to them, and that we're going to be part of that process. We're going to be teaching them and telling them and living out in front of them the grace of God that's found in Christ. So by baptizing that child, what we're doing is we're identifying that child as one to whom we want to bring to Jesus. For adults who haven't been baptized, we baptize them publicly in front of everyone so that they can, in a sense, stand before the world and say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I want to worship him with my life. And so baptism, that what we call now the sacrament, is a very active part of our worship of the risen Christ. And then the last thing he says is teaching them to observe everything or all that I have commanded you. Now, at this point, if I'm a disciple, and he says, I want you to go out and I want you to teach him everything I've said to you, I'm going to be looking around going, did anybody take notes? <laughs> Does anybody remember? Could, Jesus, can we go back to Sermon on the Mount for you? I need to get the Beatitudes. I think I got them out of order. I mean, I would have been going, oh, my goodness. I don't know that I remember everything that, that you've said to us. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, this generation of apostles was able to pen uh, the New Testament along with the Apostle Paul and one or two other, uh, other uh, writers. And we have been given down through the ages, generation after generation, faithful teachers, preachers, folks that proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. And it's proclaimed right here in the written word. There are lots of people I've met that said, I came to Christ because I read a Bible. Somebody put it in my hands. I didn't need the teacher. I just needed the teacher, so to speak. And they came to Christ. But it's important for us as believers in Jesus, those of us this morning who are disciples of Jesus, and maybe you're a small group leader, or maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, uh, maybe you're involved in some kind of, of discipleship where you're sharing the good news of the gospel, can we please make sure that we put it in terms that folks can understand? Can we be careful to make sure that as we're going and teaching, that we speak in a manner that folks can grasp and get their minds around? And let us not be obstacles by, by using language that's outdated or outmoded, but let us be careful to seek to speak clearly in order to help people come to Christ and understand His truth. Uh, I was in the office of, uh, probably about two months ago now. It was the first Sunday that Jeremy was starting his new uh, Sunday morning Sunday school class. And uh, I get in there early on Sunday mornings, and Jeremy was in there, and his light was on. I'm like, oh, welcome to my world. You know, I was kind of teasing him. Good to see you early on Sunday morning. How's it going? Are you all ready to go? He goes, oh, I'm so far behind. 
So well, you're so far behind, you're the most prepared guy I know. If you're not prepared, we're in big trouble. He said, oh, no, I had, I had problems with my truck on Friday, and I tried to fix it, and it took me not only all day Friday, but, but about three-fourths of the day on Saturday to get this dumb truck fixed. And like a fool, I said, well, what was wrong with it? Now, you've got to know, I, I'm, if, whoever the least mechanical person in the world is, that's my picture. It's me. I can't fix anything. And Jeremy goes, well, you know, Tom, I had problems with a head gasket. I have no idea what a head gasket is. He said, you know, to get the head gasket off, you have to have a certain kind of wrench. And he described the wrench. He goes, you know, and I looked at the toolbox, I didn't have that, so I had to go to the hardware store. They didn't have it, so I had to go to an automotive parts store. Finally got that, got the head gasket off. And well, then, you know, when you get the head gasket off, the cylinders were, and he's going in this long description. And I'm sitting there going, really? That's fascinating. And I'm going, this guy could be speaking Chinese to me. I have no idea what he's saying. Sometimes I think that when we, when we share the gospel with folks, and we're supposed to be teaching them everything that Jesus said to us. We've got to be careful to use the right words. Jesus says that the worship of our lives basically is introducing people to him and bringing them to him. And then as he closes, he gives an assurance behind our worship. The second part of verse 20. Teach them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think he added those last few words for you and for me. Because the end of the age hasn't come yet. It's been 2,000 years. And it may seem like Jesus is a long time in returning. And it may be that, that we don't think this morning, maybe part of our doubt is, Jesus, are you really there? Are you really Lord? Are you really the one in whom I can trust? I want to be a disciple. And Jesus promises his permanent presence in our life. Lots of folks may tell you, you know, I'm not leaving, I'm not going anywhere, and, and I'll be with you always. You know, that's, you hear that a lot in romantic movies, you know, I'm always with you. Uh, or I've even uh, had people say, you know, uh, to loved ones as they are dying, you know, I'll, my spirit will always be with you. And those are kind words, and they're compassionate words, but the facts are, the only person that can ever be with you always is the Lord Jesus himself. So I said at the outset of the, the uh, sermon this morning, I'm getting ready to go on a four-month sabbatical in about eight and a half minutes. <laughs> Not that I've been watching the clock countdown. But I won't be here for four months. That doesn't mean you're not going to have spiritual issues in your life. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to have problems in your marriage. It doesn't mean that, that the things that you and I from time to time have the opportunity to talk about and pray through are going to stop happening and everything's going to be perfect for four months. And I'm going to be gone. Now, there are lots of other great people here that are going to step right in and we're not going to miss a beat. But the facts are, I can't even as the pastor say, I'll always be with you. I can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. In those dark moments of your soul, you get that bad report from the doctor. Your business is going crazy. Your kids are a mess. You don't think you're ever going to graduate from the eighth grade. It's your fourth try and you're just not going to make it. <laughs> There's only one person who can speak his truth into your life at that moment. It's the one who says, I'll always be with you. Should we worship the resurrected Christ? Every day, moment by moment, for his glory and for our good. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your patience and your grace with your disciples. You didn't chastise them. You didn't fuss at them when they showed up and they saw you and they still had some lingering hesitation in their hearts, unsure about the proper way to react. But as the one who had all authority, you ministered graciously to them. 
You empowered them by reminding that all the authority had been given to you and that you were going to be with them so that they could go and live lives of worship, be purposeful in their discipleship, in their following of you. Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that for every person in this congregation. Maybe we've been skeptical up to this moment and it's just now dawned on us that Jesus is the truly resurrected Christ and we want to put our faith in him. Lord Jesus, wherever we are this morning, may we follow you, not because we're good people, but because you strengthen us for lives of worship and we follow joyfully, longing for the day when we will see you face to face. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Please stand.